the History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening. On this week's programme, death, murder and politics in County Monaghan. He's never safe. If he finds and his jury finds legally and officially what they think is the right thing to do, if it does not agree with the values and the politics of the local elite, it puts him at great risk. Michelle McGough-McCann on the career of Coroner William Charles Waddle and what his detailed casebooks tell us about Irish society in the 19th century. Also, the relationship between two historical figures who represent ancestral voices in Irish politics. And this is about the interaction about these two men. And then there is an emblematic sense of which they represent two different traditions within Irish nationalism. Professor Paul Bew joins me in studio to talk about the contrasts and commonalities in the lives of John Dillon and Charles Stuart Parnell. Coroners who conducted inquests into sudden and suspicious deaths in 19th century Ireland operated in a society that was highly politicised and deeply divided. While the men who served in this role represented the authority of government and the need for social order and justice, it often put them at odds with the local elites. This was particularly apparent when they were exposing corruption, social and moral failures and sectarian murders. William Charles Waddle served as coroner of North County Monaghan for over three decades in the 19th century. His detailed casebooks, spanning over 31 years, chart the evolving role of the coroner in this crucial period in Irish history. Waddle's inquest reports cover everything from the harsh reality of death by starvation to political murder. They tell the story of a society that was politically polarised, placing the coroner at the centre of the conflict. This is explored in a recently published book from Four Courts Press. It's called The Irish Coroner, Death, Murder and Politics in County Monaghan, 1846 to 1878. The author is Dr Michelle McGough-McCann, who joins me now. Michelle, you're very welcome to The History Show. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Miles. Tell us first of all about your own background and how you came across these unique coroner's casebooks. Oh, sure. So my ancestry on my father's side is my family's from County Monaghan. So in June of 2000, I moved to Ireland um, for what I thought would be a short amount of time. And I was doing research on a book. Um, But I also happened to meet someone who is my husband of 22 years. And I stayed, needless to say. And how this attributes to my research is I was always interested in putting County Monaghan on the map because I think it's underrepresented in Irish historiography. And I thought it would be exciting to do something and do a book on death and murder. And it's something to actually try to embrace and understand Monaghan a little bit more in the 19th century. So at that time, in around 2001, I was introduced to Waddle's second case book, which is privately held And the um, McCrory's of County Down allowed me to use it to write a book, uh, which I did, called Melancholy Bandus that came out in 2003. And I thought that would be it. I grouped the deaths together to try to help people understand a little bit more about 19th century Ireland, particularly County Monaghan. And then what happened was over the years, in about 2013, I discovered that Waddle's first casebook which is dated from 1846 to 1855, was in existence again. It had been considered missing. And I was doing my master's in Irish history and uh, moving into um, considering doing a PhD and went, right, now that this is back in action, I never thought I'd find this. 
I'm going to do my PhD. I'm going to write a book on this. And uh, over the course of that time period from then till now, um, I found his third casebook that was mislabeled. So I have all 31 years of his inquests. My passion has always been and still is to put County Monaghan on the map to get a better understanding of the social and political history that's been, I think, underrepresented for a very long time. Okay, tell us a bit about the background then of this of this coroner, William Charles Waddle. Sure. So William Charles Waddle is a really interesting character. He is a representative of other men at that time who were coroners in the 19th century. He's an industrious merchant. He's a landowner and a gentleman. And he also works as a land agent for his wealthy uncle, who's a Dublin businessman, um, whose name is uh, Charles Hopes. And they both hail from a lineage of Scottish Presbyterians uh, from Ulster. And kind of similar to the work that Professor Peter Gray from Queen's University has done on uh, William Sherman Crawford, this is a family of a very interesting Presbyterian family of both liberal and conservative politics. So whilst Waddle has um, uh, ancestors who had their own voluntary force, in the late 1700s, he also has uh, some who contributed and participated in the uh, 1798 Rising. So what Waddle himself decides to do is align himself with the conservative elite in County Monaghan. And this bodes very well for him. He serves as a juror and a very reliable local merchant and, and person of, of considerable respect. And in 1846, he is elected, but I would say appointed coroner because he ran unopposed. So you you get access to these three casebooks. I mean, it must have been incredibly exciting to get the first. You had the second one to start off with, but incredibly exciting to get the earlier one, which which covers the famine period. But how much detail do these casebooks contain? Are we talking about one line for every case or is there more detail than that? Yeah, I mean, so these are a a unique set. There is nothing else like them. What they detail is witness testimony on the ground. If if we focus from from his first inquest, let's say in May of 1846 and through the famine, for the first two years, he's working as a coroner. And for a certain point in time, he is the only coroner um, documenting certain deaths during the famine. And the detail in the inquest, um, some could consider them a bit austere and a little bit like unemotional, but the emotion is in there. There's so many. Um, So over his career, he does 1,223 inquests and over 100 inquiries. And what you find during the famine period in particular is for the first time you actually can identify a lot of people who were dying of starvation, a lot of people who died of famine-related disease, and actually just how hard things were in County Monaghan at that time. And I think that what's so unique about the records is some of the real painful testimony. And then you have to look and dig a bit deeper. And that's what the Irish Corner, my book is all about, is really trying to understand and put it in a context of why these inquests are so important and what they reveal. Um, there's, there's lots of examples to provide. I mean, one I can offer is... Uh, In 1848, there's an inquest of a woman who, uh, her husband's died, and Waddle goes to to, um, investigate, and he conducts a jury, and they want to understand why her husband's died. And she says, well, he was eating, he he was eating food, he refused to go into the workhouse because we still had things to sell, and 
a very, you know, unique note that Waddle puts in his case book is that the jury said this isn't true, actually, that the husband was um, going door to door uh, begging for food and he died. He, they found that he died of want and destitution. And, and what that really shows is that there was shame involved um, of people dying from starvation. So I think that that level of detail that's provided, and that's just one example, um, the level of detail provided in the inquest is incredibly valuable to the history of County Monaghan, but to the wider context of famine historiography. And are most of the cases that he deals with during the famine, are they mostly workhouse deaths? No, actually, um, it's, that's a really great question. Um, no, that is significantly underrepresented. So not everyone needed an inquest, right? So it was not required. It's, people get very, it's confusing. Um, the 19th century was, if he was informed that someone died suddenly or suspiciously, he would have to go investigate. Now, it wasn't legally mandated that someone had, the coroners had to go and investigate every death in the workhouse. So it's significantly underrepresented. But what I was able to find that from um, my academic advisors and peers have told me is that this is totally unique information that the inquest um, and the Irish coroner provides now uh, to famine history, is that there is a trend of people leaving, particularly the elderly, leaving the workhouse and they die back in their own townlands uh, within hours and at the maximum two days. They die from disease, they die from starvation, but they're leaving the workhouse in droves. So this, it's a new phenomenon that's been discovered that the conditions in the Monaghan workhouse, particularly the Monaghan Poor Law Union, was so poor that people would rather leave and die in a field rather than stay within the workhouse. And are you getting more information from his case books than you would, for example, from newspapers? Because newspapers would report on not all inquests, but they would report on a lot of inquests. Yeah. So um, if you look at, um, for example, what I investigated was certainly if you look at, um, there's a coroner named Atkinson in Mayo during the famine, and he uses the Mayo Constitution as his newspaper to have published, of course, they were willing to, the names and places and conditions of starvation deaths in Mayo, as well as his letters to the Lord Lieutenant begging and, and pleading for help. This also happens in Skibbereen, and I probably don't need to say too much more so that we understand and in the South and in the West that some things were well communicated or communicated as best could be done. In Monaghan, not so much. So I found a handful, only a handful of deaths from starvation that were published in the, at the time in the conservative Northern Standard. And this suggests that there's an agency between the local elite, their newspaper, the conservative Northern Standard, and the editor, who was also would be considered one of them, and Waddle, potentially. Um, he may have wanted them published, but they weren't. So, I mean, it's underrepresented in newspapers, which then, again, exacerbates and just emphasizes that much more how important the case books are to actually see the coroner waddle at the coalface of what's actually happening on the ground during the famine at that time. Some of which suggests that although Waddle was a member of the local elite, that perhaps he occasionally came in conflict with the local elite. He did. I mean, the, the role of the coroner, he's representative of coroners at the time that were always at a site of conflict. 
So they're, they're elected or appointed, um, and they're in this role. Prior to 1838, when the poor law comes in, the coroner is the only elected f- official in local government. So the homogeneity of the local Protestant Irish elite who all select each other or selected by the Lord Lieutenant, they are, this is not about like the public vote. The coroner is the only elected official. And even in 1846, when Waddle becomes the coroner, the only other elected officials are poor law guardians. And, and that's a, a collective mix, mostly. And, and I think ultimately what I'm trying to kind of communicate here is that the role of coroner is always a site of conflict because if the verdict of his jury finds that there has been corruption at the workhouse or a sectarian willful murder of someone who's local and Protestant, he is going to be at the site of conflict. And in particular during the famine, the inquest that he's, he, which kind of tells a bit of the character of Waddle and, and what kind of person he is, these inquests, he's, he interviews the local relief officers. You know, when there's a woman who has three children and one of them dies and she hasn't been getting the right relief to get food and supplies for children is, is, you know, he questions why, and that testimony's in there. And regardless if the relief officer says, I have no idea, <laughs> it's the fact that he goes that, he, he does the right thing. He's trying, he takes the role of coroner as a professional, and I think it reflects some of his values as well. He also investigates sectarian murders. That must have been a bit of a minefield. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, he's, he's got a couple inquests that were um, quite contentious. There's one in particular where there is, uh, in July of of 1868, um, the Orangemen gather and they are doing their their annual victory celebrations outside Monaghan town. And they come into town and there is is an affray and it results in a Catholic named Thomas Hughes being murdered from a gunshot wound. And the man accused at the inquest or considered the uh, responsible party as a, as a man named David Beard, and he's a Protestant. He's also a merchant in town. And so what happens is Waddle's jury wants to say, we find him guilty of willful murder, but at the same time, he has the right to defend himself. That's what we want the verdict to be. And Waddle says, you can't do that, guys. <laughs> we, that's how about, man, you know, how about manslaughter? So they won't agree. They later convene and they say they disagree with him. And he, they say, yep, it's willful murder. And the local elite in the local paper, and this becomes national news. And there's lots of cases that Waddle was involved in that were national news. But this one in particular is um, interesting because in a higher court later on, it's found that Waddle's done nothing wrong. He gathered his jury, reconvened his jury. But the local conservative Northern Standard that is a reflection of the middle class readership and the local elite says, we'll look into this, that this is a little game the coroner's playing. So he's never safe. If he finds and his jury finds legally and officially what they think is the right thing to do, if it does not agree with the values and the politics of the local elite, it puts him at great risk. There are a couple of other cases which I would imagine would have made the national news. Those are two double homicides in the 1840s, very close together, 1847 and then another one in 1849. Tell us about those two cases. So the two double homicide cases of two sets of women, and the first one happens in April of 1847, which is the the height of the crisis in County Monaghan. So things are not 
going well in County Monaghan, and it is desperate. And this is the, the double homicide of the Cullen sisters. They're two women who are living on their own. They are from the Shirley estate in Farney in South Monaghan, and they are brutally murdered. And they never, and it makes national news, they never find the culprits. And, and there is a neighbor lady named Mary Bell who says, well, I was returning. I found the women. I found the sister, the Cullen sisters. I was returning 6D, six pennies, I was, which was up to a day's, either half a day's or a day's wage at that time. That's a lot of money then. She was returning money to them or paying them back. And then uh, Shirley himself, the landlord, offers a, a very large reward. Um, and, and as the evidence is kind of pulled together, it indicates that the women may, ha may have been money lenders, and they were certainly favorites of the landlord, Shirley, who is a notorious character in um, Monaghan history and in Irish history of not being very kind or supportive. He had monster evictions on his estate. So it indicates that these financially independent women, I use the term, um, but potentially were money lenders or gombeans, and it may have been seen that they were taking advantage of people. They never find the suspects. But the inquest itself gives some evidence that actually locally people thought it was people nearby. The other set, uh, the double homicide that happens in May of 1849, are two women that are living together, potentially relatives, younger and older women. And this looks like the family did it. The younger girl has inherited a great deal of money, 20 pounds, and the two women are financially independent. This now becomes national news as well. And this is really publicized in every paper throughout the United Kingdom at the time in Ireland. And it's compared to, there were two men in the uh, early part of the 19th century that were sensationalized murders. One was John Good and the other one was Goodacre. And they, there was a sexual context to the murders. And so these poor women um, are found burnt from the waist down. They've been posed in front of the, the fireplace, in front of the hearth. And the offenders are compared to essentially sensationalized murders in England. And, and what both represent is two sets of financially independent women who you would think should be safe during this time. At least they can feed themselves, they can take care of themselves, but that's not the case. And I think that there's a lot more to actually investigate there and I make some comparisons and try to delve into that more in, in my book, The Irish Corner. After the famine, even after the famine, Waddle is still investigating deaths in workhouses. Tell us about the case of two infants who died in 1855 in the Clonus workhouse. Yeah, so yeah, in, in October of 1855, Waddle goes to the Clonus workhouse and there's two infants who have died. And he interviews the nurses, he has two different doctors and a jury, and the master and the matron of the Clonus Workhouse, who are the Kirkpatricks. And the inquest well details that, in fact, what's happened is that the matron had an infant as well, and what she's done is had the two women who should be feeding their own children, feeding her child instead. And it actually makes it into the local paper, and it is rather contentious, because it's first reported that they weren't found of starvation. It's not true. But in fact, it turns out that they lied to the inspector general. And it turns out that actually they did, in fact, based on the medical evidence provided by 
the, uh, both doctors that the children died of starvation. So in the following year, you do not see Matron Kirkpatrick there anymore. And her husband is slowly phased out after that, but there's someone new in charge the following year in the annual recurse report. One of the things you found was his the final diary, uh, which is 1876-1877, so it only, it only co- covers a couple of years. Was there much of interest in that diary or casebook? Yeah, rather? there was. There's two. There's a couple of things. There's actually lots of things, but there's two that stand out. Is One is it captures a couple of the deaths in, of the agricultural famine that takes place in 1877, which is is shocking. I mean, I never thought that, you know, you'd think that would sort of been brushed over and there's not much in the newspapers about it. So that was really unique and and showed that actually the vagrants, mendicants, beggars, all wrapped up, let's say, in one wrapper at the time, um, were, there were still people wandering around looking for food and they just couldn't find any. And and it kind of reflects uh, what's happening socially again during a famine and about how harsh the reality is in, in County Monaghan. And also that the asylum has opened. The uh, Monaghan at the time called the Monaghan Lunatic Asylum has finally opened. And it shows that that Waddle is going consistently. There's about 68 uh, inquiries that he makes. So they're not full inquests, but clearly the law has been imposed and it's considered important that the, anyone who dies at the asylum is considered worthy of an investigation by the coroner. And I think that's quite significant about the change that's happening in society at that time, that this is considered something that's worthy of attention and needs to be looked into officially, and most importantly, paid for by the local grand jury. What about the role of the coroner? These diaries cover a very interesting period, the middle section of the 19th century, as it were, from the height of the famine to the eve of the land war. Does the role of the coroner change much during those three decades? It does and it doesn't. I mean, they're, they're struggling, right? So in comparison with, say, English coroners, although the Irish coroner eventually benefits from this man's work, but they've, the English coroner has Thomas Wakeley. He's this radical MP. He's a medical doctor. He's the founder of the medical journal, The Lancet, which is still in publication. And he gets them salaries and paid assistance and pensions. Well, it's very different in Ireland. It's a very politically polarized society. And you ha- we have men in Ireland at that time who this is about patronage and it's a job for life. So over this 31 years, what you see is Waddle actually himself, although considers himself and clearly, I think it's clear, tries to professionalize this office and he bonds with other coroners who are fighting for the rights to try to make the role salaried so it doesn't look like they're profiting from death and trying to professionalize the office. And I think what does happen over the century, and it's not in the 31 years, it it starts to change, but after Waddle's death, what actually does come clear is that they finally, they, the administration, finally approves and passes legislation that you have to have a professional qualification, whether it be a solicitor or a doctor, and this is in 1881, to run and have a professional qualification for the role. And then ultimately, at the end of the century, in 1898, there's the Local Government Act, which dissolves the grand juries, institutes county councils, but also finally the coroner is a civil servant with a salary. 
and he'd be appointed based on his professional qualifications. Well, it's a fascinating social history. The book is called The Irish Coroner, Death, Murder and Politics in County Monaghan, 1846 to 1878. It's published by Four Courts Press. The author is my guest, Dr. Michelle McGough McCann. Michelle, many thanks indeed for joining us on The History Show. Oh, thank you, Miles. I appreciate it. Thank you. After the break, I'll be joined in studio by Professor Paul Bew to talk about his new book, Ancestral Voices in Irish Politics, Judging Dylan and Parnell. Stay with us. The History Show with Miles Dungan on RTE Radio 1. Charles Stuart Parnell was one of the greatest leaders of the 19th century and one of the most renowned Irish figures of the 1880s on the international stage. John Dillon, Parnell's lieutenant, was the last leader of the Irish party in Westminster. A new book looks at their lives and overlapping political careers and explores issues of social and cultural division that still complicate Irish politics even 25 years after the Good Friday Agreement. The author is Paul Bew, Emeritus Professor of Irish Politics at Queen's University Belfast and a crossbench peer in the House of Lords. The book is called Ancestral Voices in Irish Politics, Judging Dylan and Parnell. I'm joined now by Paul Bew. Paul, you're very welcome indeed to The History Show. Thank you. Great pleasure to have you here in, in studio. Let's clarify, first of all, the pronunciation of the name of the person I call Charles Stuart Parnell, but I know that's not what he called himself. Well, correct. I also called him Parnell for many, many years until my friend Roy Foster who had written a very important book on Charles Short Parnell, The Man and His Family, explained to me it was not Parnell, but Short Parnell. And I was corrected, and I've tried to get it right. I'll tell you the truth, like a lot of Irish people, I'm going back to the time, I slip back into Parnell quite often. Indeed. I shouldn't. <laughs> no, neither, neither I should call him Parnell as well, but I'd, I've been calling him Parnell for so long, it's very, very difficult to do otherwise. Now, um, you've written over the years quite a lot about mm. uh, about Parnell and Dylan in, in mm. over your career. So why did you want now to look at them both in this sort of dual biography? Well, what I hadn't done is is look at their interaction. And this is about the interaction about these two men. And then there is an emblematic sense uh, of which they represent two different traditions within Irish nationalism. And that was the interest to me. So actually, I had written a fair bit about both of them in different ways from different angles. But what I'd never done, and I'm not quite sure why, but I'd never done is brought them into the same room with each other. And that's what's going on in this book. Uh, and, and it's very much taking up with the almost the physical, but also the family presence of these men and the traditions that they came from when they're in the same room together. Um, I suppose Parnell or Parnell is from the the, the Protestant patriot yeah. tradition, and Dylan, obviously because of his father being John Blake Dylan, is from a more young Ireland tradition. Yeah. I mean, Dylan is a classic emergent figure. He liked to say, "I'm the grandson of an evicted tenant," but actually, his grandfather was a successful businessman, and his father a successful lawyer, educated in Trinity College, Dublin. This is a new emergent Catholic bourgeoisie, and Dylan is, uh, and the, the the particular business interests that they have in the West of Ireland are extensive and not small scale, and helped to fund his career throughout his life. So Dylan represents a Catholic bourgeoisie which is not incompetent at making money, among other things, but also very well educated, 
more literate than Parnell uh, by a long, long way. Some people would say Parnell was very typical of the gentry who were not particularly well-read in this period. And not particularly good at making money either. And not particularly good at making money, and indeed there is some evidence that in the late 1870s it would be wrong to say Parnell was on his knees, but he certainly wasn't making... The family generally weren't making a lot of money in the late 1870s. It's actually one reason why nationalists respected Parnell, because they knew that what money he had, he threw into his political career. They knew that he wasn't rolling in it. Now, they were both parliamentarians, Irish Parliamentary Party MPs, and uh, I think at some point during your sojourn in the Houses of Parliament, you realised that you were stalking the same corridors as these two well, men had stalked in their time. Well, there's a Parnell, there's a Parnell statue... Uh, and indeed, there's a Redmond. There's no Dylan. There are a number of uh, major uh, paintings reflecting on the Home Rule debates, huge paintings in the Palace of Westminster, which I have to say, I don't think any of the English members of Parliament give more than a glance to, if a glance. There is, outside the Salisbury Room in the Lords, there is a major political cartoon, which is a Parnell, and it's Parnell and Gladstone and Salisbury all playing a game as to who Parnell is going to support in the 1885 election. It's Salisbury being the Marquess of Salisbury, the leader of the Tory Sol- party. Salisbury being the Mar- and the Tory Prime Minister in this period. The interesting, one of the things that surprised me in this book, because the book represents a lot on what people look like, how they dressed, Tillens penchant for a red trousers. I mean, I've begun to realise, being in Westminster, actually what people look like, how they dress, how they carry themselves, is actually part of politics. There's a physical, almost a carnal element to what I'm describing in this book, which is different to anything else that I've ever written. But one of the exceptions to the point that I'm trying to make, that these people mixed and looked at each other and listened carefully to tone and people said when Dylan wore his red trousers, you knew you were in for a bad row, um, is Salisbury. Salisbury never, ever bothered leader in the House of Lords, the last major prime minister to do that job from the House of Lords. You couldn't do it, not for 100 years. Not plausible. But he never even bothered to go down and have a look at Parnell. All you have to do is look down, walk down the corridor a few minutes and look in. That was something I would do regularly to watch Commons debates now. He never even bothered. So at the end of it all, towards the end, Margot asked, said, didn't you know that he was a remarkably handsome man? And he said, what? No, no, I never bothered to look. <laughs> so that in its own way, in one way, it disproves my thesis about how they mixed and they looked at each other. In the other way, the exception to the rule also tells you something. Uh, somebody who did come regularly and watch Parnell make speeches in the House of Commons was one Catherine O'Shea. Yes, and he did glance up. Churchill gets that because Churchill was coming in as a teenager and his father, his father also was personally very friendly with Parnell. And despite the fact you can argue that Churchill's father betrayed Parnell in a certain sense... Parnell never turned on Churchill's father. So there's an affection there. And Churchill describes Parnell glancing up to Kitty, to Catherine O'Shea, Mm. and describes him looking up and catching her eye. And other journalists describe Dylan with his children in one night, quiet night, one of his children suddenly realising with Mrs Dylan that their father was speaking, shouting out in the chamber very loudly, Daddy, Daddy, (laughs) (laughs) which was a... 
you know, House of Commons has only got used to this kind of thing in more yeah. recent times. Yeah, one doesn't think of John Dillon as a particularly paternal figure, but obviously he was a father, so he was <laughs> he was paternal by definition. Yeah. One of the fascinating things about the book, and one of the things I love about the book, is that you address, um, you know, because you've written about these two men, because you've written about this period before, you address unexpected elements and mm. unexpected mm. issues. For example, where do the members of the Irish Party eat? Mm. Well, you see, that's so interesting because they tended to eat in Parliament itself because the food would be quite good and it would be quite cheap. Many of the English members would go out to better restaurants nearby. Secondly, people would dress for dinner in that period. They didn't. So they're all sitting together. I'm sure there many a jolly evening they say in the Westminster Hotel, which is described by William O'Brien as dismal. Uh, um, so they're not rushing back, and why should they? But they're obviously a visibly separate group. They're there en masse, dying together like that, and they're not dressed the way right into John Dillon's career after Parliament's died. MPs were normally dressed. They're not dressed as formally or as well for dinner. And they just, in that sense, they sit out as not quite equal citizens. In other ways, of course, they are more than equal citizens. By the time the Labour Party starts to come in after 1906, Dylan's been in Parliament for, what is it, 25 years at least? Dylan knows all forms of procedure. So the British, new British Labour Party MPs are always coming to John saying, just guide us through. We want to raise this issue about foreign policy. And Dylan was the only Irish party member who actually was interested in foreign policy. And Dylan really knew. And Dylan would say, well, if I was you, I'd do this and do that. And there were many of them, Dylan, not alone, five, six of them, seven of the Irish part, top-rate speakers. So in that sense, they were respected. But there's also this social dimension as well. Now, um, you suggest that Dylan's nationalism had a certain patriarchal quality. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming that that means some sort of patronising uh, Well, no, no, it's just that he, when Parnell talked about his people, Parnell meant either the Parnell family or the wider Anglo-Irish gentry. When Dylan talks about his people, he means Catholic Ireland, and in a sense he owns them. He determines what they should compromise for or not compromise for at a given time. So like Dev, he looks into his own heart. He did, uh, but it's also it's slightly surprising because he's carrying this very strong resentment, not against Protestants in general, when he starts out, he's very careful to say there's a Presbyterian tenant class in the North who've got their specific outlooks and to be very respectful towards them. But he does have a thing against the Anglo-Irish gentry. He does have a thing, a very, very hostile attitude towards Trinity College Dublin. Now, John Redmond, who's actually the leader of the Irish party, he'd been at Trinity College, Redmond's own... John Dillon, had, had his, his father had been at Trinity as well. Quite why there is this intense dislike. I mean, there's lots of reasons why you might regard as snobbish, you know, tedious, upper, DP Moore and, you know, couldn't stand up, upper class boys, uh, uh, you know, entitled. West Brit, as West Brit. There's lots. It's just the sheer intensity of it. And, for example, something that John Redmond, the leader of the Irish, had absolutely nothing but affection for Trinity. So for Dylan, it, there is this thing about the emerging Catholic bourgeoisie, increasingly well-off, increasingly substantial business interests, living in Great George Street, the house that Sir John Parnell had lived in. But there is this resentment of, of what remains, of what most people would see as, as the fading gentry. 
and Anglo-Irish interests and West British interests. And Dylan, and, and, and so many other nationalists are saying, come on now, John, William O'Brien in particular, it's over for them. Now, now we've got to cut a deal with them now. We've done it. We fought the battle. The land war's over. We cut the deal now. That's what Parliament would have wanted. And Dylan couldn't bring himself to do that. Mm. And it's very, very striking. This really intense visceral dislike, not of Protestants, but of the upper-class ascendancy, which apparently challenged the Catholic upper-middle-class bourgeoisie from which he came himself. Indeed. Um, interestingly, you point out, and it hadn't occurred to me that it's uh, more than 50 years since FSL Lyons' biography of, of Dylan, mm. that he hasn't attracted a biographer for half a century. There have been umpteen biographies of Parnell, including mm. your own. There have been uh, biographies of William O'Brien, of, of, of John Redmond, mm. uh, you know, and, people, and, and his associates, his yeah. close associates. Why not? Why, why are people put off John Dillon? It's because the Lions documentary, uh, the Lions biography was so good. Yeah, well, it, partly it is very good. But I do think, and I've felt for some time, that, for example, Dillon's connection with radical agrarian politics the most left-wing politics like Larry Gunnell, who was the only MP in the Irish party who successfully made the transition to Sinn Féin. Dylan's connection with the left like that was not officially dealt with in, in, in Lyons' book, but it is, it, is a very, it is a very good book. But it's more than the fact that people think, oh, there's nothing much more to say. It's because he's fallen out of fashion. And he's fallen out of fashion for two reasons. If you're a, a conciliatory nationalist, then you're going to say William O'Brien was right. And Dylan missed the chances to reach out to the other community. If you're a Republican, you're going to say Dylan continued to believe in home rule as the best, that believed that the outcome of the War of Independence was a disaster. I mean, that's really strange. Nobody speaks out, but there's a long struggle for home rule. Nobody speaks out more bitterly against what it had delivered to the Irish people in the 20s and said it's a total mess and a disaster than John Dillon. So from if you're a moderate or if you're a militant, Dylan somehow is, is hopelessly falling in the mm. middle. And, you know, he would himself have acknowledged that his career in that sense that was a failure, but it means he doesn't attract admirers. And in my earlier life on this, I wasn't that attractive. I'm much more attractive. He's an unattractive character, but obviously he's not an uninteresting well, character. Well, but there, are, but there are things that you've got to look at which are attractive. Like, for example, nobody believed more in the Irish language. His son, in the end, in the 20th century, was, I think it's widely accepted, the greatest scholar mm. of the Irish language, Miles still in, in, in the country. Uh, nobody believed in it more, and nobody was more determined that it not be used as a political instrument against Protestants. In jobs, nobody. There are things like that which are really striking in Dylan's later career, and, and the more his career goes on, the more even he begins to acknowledge in the last ten years the ascendancy of God. And Penny finally drops with him, you know, ten years after most other people have realised that they've gone as, as as a serious force in Irish life. And there is this most dramatic thing he says in his last speech, which I think one of the faults of my book is I should have made more of it. In his very last speech, the last statement of, of constitutional nationalism in Parliament, he says, I was opposed to the Act of Union, which I regard as immoral, but my politics are about democratic Irish nationalism is about trying to overturn something that was immoral by not immoral means. Mm. And that, of course, is great critique of, of both de Valera and, and, and Michael Collins. The, the task was to try and turn it, which was itself politically immoral, had to be changed but not to use immoral means so to do.
Speaking of immorality, one of the things that puzzled me about the book is one of your early chapters deals with John Mitchell and his legacy. Why did John Mitchell deserve so much attention in a book on Parnell and Dylan? Well, partly the way, it's partly the way that Dylan in particular, Parnell to a lesser degree, they are votaries of of the Mitchell cult. I mean, Dylan throws himself into that uh, Parnell is also there. And 1875, when Mitchell returns to Ireland, having been in America for a long time, and wins that seat, which does change everything, that seat in Tipperary, because it shows, although there have been other signs of it, that actually the Fenians, if they organised themselves, could win a parliamentary seat. He's not allowed to keep the seat. He's not, but the first yeah. time he has to, he has to uh, fight it the second time, and he dies anyway. He could have gone to Westminster. The, even the English establishment say, we could say this is an escaped criminal. We're not going to. That would be too much. But this is also somebody coming back to Ireland in 1975 who has written extensively, who has served time in jail after the uh, American yeah. Civil War and who is about as pro-slavery, no, more pro-slavery than, than many of the members Dillon of the Confederate Parnell, administration. Neither Dylan, 1875, but neither Dylan nor Parnell are pro-slavery. But Dylan, when Mitchell is in Ireland, he's dying, visibly dying, one of the last... At the funeral, apart from the family, the only person there is John Dillon, really, in the end, uh, as a pallbearer. But Dylan, John Dillon reads out in Cork. It's the statement that Mitchell wants to read out, including this fulmination in favour of slavery. And he reads it out even though he can't have believed it himself. We know exactly what John Dylan, his father, thought. We know what Parnell, Parnell said. If he'd been a bit, if only been a bit older, he'd have joined the, the Union Army. So, you know, we know what they thought about slavery, mm. but both of them decide to give him a pass on this. Of course, the British papers say, quite understandably, say, well, so you're for freedom, are you, for the Irish, but not apparently for black people. What's going on here? Well, the British record of the American Civil War wouldn't be exemplary either, well, yeah, but <laughs> Yes, but that's to touch on that, you see. Irish nationalists loved quite rightly to say that, particularly Gladstone's ambiguous language. And that's why the Mitchell thing is especially embarrassing, because most Irish nationalists, most Irish Americans have got a position you could stand over on mm. the American Civil War. Yeah, the O'Connellites. Uh, uh, yeah, and, is, and O'Connell is, as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, did the O'Shea divorce give carte blanche to John Dillon to do something that he had long wished to do and unload on Parnell? Or, like William O'Brien, mm. did he do so with an element of regret? You don't see the same regret, and I, I think it's going too far to say that he always wanted to do so, or had this Ariel Ponce, although he knew from very early on about this relationship. He'd known for a decade about the possible vulnerability that would have created for Parnell. But there is a very long before the divorce case, it becomes clear that on the land issue, Parnell has decided no more militancy. I'm not ever going on a land platform myself again, and we should be looking to sort this out in a way that brings about social peace and stability in Ireland as quickly as possible. Now, Dylan has not decided that in 1890, and he certainly hasn't decided, even as late as 1903, he's not decided it. So there, there is this clear tension between quite literally what they say in Hansard. If you look at it, Parnell is looking for ways out. Parnell is saying it's, it's, it's an exaggerated question. You know, we, we don't need to worry about the stronger farmers, all these sorts of things. And and Dylan is not, not at all interested in the idea that the Irish land question could possibly be exaggerated in support. You couldn't possibly exaggerate because it's so transcendently mm. important. 
and of course Parnell just did not support the the plan of campaign. This uh, is the uh, kind of the second round. And war, Dylan ends up in jail during that campaign, and Parnell had absolutely no time for it at all, and regarded it as a as a, as a huge political mistake and a hugely pointed mistake. And he also believed that, for example, in the rich farmers, the Murrow tenantry in Limerick, uh, Lord Concurry's tenants, he also believed that Dylan had wound these people up into a conflict where these well-off farmers were going to lose out. And either the national cause then paid out to these well-out farmers so they didn't lose out, or the national cause suffered. And so he also believed that Dylan was an adventurist in these areas, liking, like leading to outcomes in agrarian conflicts which were not good. Yeah, I mean, Parnell certainly didn't like spending money on the victims, if you can call them that, of the, no. of the plan of campaign. Finally, the, the title of the book is Ancestral Voices yeah. in Irish Politics, which is an interesting title. You think with the principle of consent for a united Ireland is discussed today, that we can view the legacy of, of both men, that we can take that legacy into consideration? I, I do think that both of them had embraced what we now call the principle of consent. Parnell, in his May 1891 speech in Belfast, Dylan, in, in 1914, now this is at the time of the Home Rule crisis, and there's a major head-to-head -head conflict between the Elsie Unionist and the Redmondite Dylanite party. How are we going to sort out the Home Rule crisis? And Dylan talks to Healy and he says, look, we've opposed coercion for our own people all this time. How can we possibly advocate coercion for this other group? It undermines our own advocacy. So Dylan quite clearly supported the idea that special arrangements had to be made. He believed, he was quite friendly with Sir James Craig, more than friendly, actually. And he believed that ultimately, anyway, if you ended this on the basis of home rule, that gradually the Unionists of the North would come in with people like him where there were friendships. That's probably naive, but that's definitely what he actually believed. I mean, he believed that the Sinn Féin revolution was a total failure in the sense that it deepened partition and the form of self-government that Ireland got, in his view, was actually... The Spectator, I think, calls Sinn Féiners at that time, what's it called, the illibit, illegitimate child of ultramontanism and Jacobins. <laughs> I think that was Dylan's view. Mm. I think that was Dylan's view. Well, the book is called Ancestral Voices in Irish Politics, Judging Dylan and Parnell. And I make a vow that from now on I'm going to attempt to call him Parnell. I'm sure, like yourself, I would <laughs> slip back, slip back. But uh, that from now on, he's Charles Stewart Parnell. Uh, the author is my guest, Paul Bew. Thank you very much, Paul, for joining us on Thank the you. History Show this evening. Thank you. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items as well as podcasts are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Jamie Doyle and Ruth Kennington on sound and our researcher Ian Canelli. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.